This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today is general election day, and voters who've not mailed in their ballots must drop off their sign envelopes by 7 p.m. tonight. We caught up with Hawaii Kai resident Edward Okina, who said he'd been sign-waving across from Honolulu Hale all summer. The former veteran says he just wants people to get out and vote, red or blue. He was wielding a Trump flag. He says while he is pro-choice and pro-environment, he is all about law and order. So, yeah, I'm holding Trump flag because I am a veteran. I'm a Navy veteran and proud Navy veteran, and I also support law enforcement. And I do not support burning the flag or kneeling for the anthem. That is insulting in so many ways to those who gave their ultimate sacrifice. So it's very insulting that people would actually condone that, specifically the DNC. So that's why you're out here today? Yeah, that's why I've been out here every day for the past three months and haven't slept for the last 24, 48 hours, probably. Yeah, yep, yeah, so doing pretty well, considering the sun and this big uh, tactical vest I have on. And Jesse Leong from Kaneohe shared the sentiment that she, too, just, you know, wanted people to get out, get involved, get out to vote. I hope people come out and vote. I hope we have the, the greatest turnout in Hawaii state history, in the nation, in national history, and I just hope for something new. Now, this morning, Chief Elections Officer Scott Nago talked with us about the ballots that have been returned so far and the plan for tonight's count. As of November 2nd, over 532,000 voters statewide have cast their ballot. That would be 64% turnout. That is a lot. I mean, the last time we've seen numbers like that was 2008, was 456,000. So we're well past that. Well, that's encouraging, you know, given how we had just a dismal turnout in the past. Yes. It could be numerous things. It could be the new vote-by-mail process. It could be the pandemic. It could be the presidential election. It's really hard to say what is causing or what is leading to this record turnout. But we felt that by putting a ballot in every voter's hands, it just makes it easier for them to cast about if they choose to do so. Well, it's probably all a little bit of all of the above. But what's the setup right now over at the convention center? How are you uh, prepping for the count? So we've, we've what we've been doing is the law allows us to start processing 10 days prior to the election. So we started last week, Saturday the 24th, um, and we've been processing basically every day. Our goal was to try and keep up with what was received in the mail the day before and have it processed and counted uh, the next day so that we would all be keeping up. So we're today we're just um, waiting for the drop-off, which we'll be receiving later this morning, closer to uh, noon. And that would just be everything dropped off in the mail today, or everything received in the mail today or drop boxes last night. Had there been any problems with the drop box locations, uh, you know, anywhere across the state that you're aware of? No, I haven't been hearing any issues at the drop boxes. I do know that they were heavily utilized, especially after that October 27th recommended mailing deadline. They were a lot of people were going down to use them because the USPS did recommend mailing your ballot prior to that, so that it would get to the elections office in time. We did see some cases of vandalism, I think, on the mainland. Has anything like that uh, popped up here? No, not that I'm aware of. And I'm, if it did, I'm sure I would have heard about it. So I'm going to say no. Have we been keeping a closer eye on those drop boxes? We've been always keeping a closer eye on them. They are empty daily or nightly. So they are empty. We don't leave ballots in overnight unless, of course, you come in and you drop them off. Since some of them are open 24 hours unless you drop them off in the middle of the night. But they are empty daily. So what's your sense as to what's going to happen today? The polls are open till 7. Shortly thereafter, once we make sure that nobody's in line voting, we will release the first results. It's really hard to say how much we're going to have in it, but we, in the primary, the first report contained over 90% of the votes cast for that entire primary election. Our goal is to have everything received up to today in that first report. And what time do you think that's going to come out? It's really hard to judge that because we're seeing lines at the voter service centers this morning. Uh, if those lines hold up all the way throughout the day, we're going to have to make sure that everybody who is in line voted before we can release the first report. So it could be anywhere from 7, 7.05 to 7.45. It just depends on how long the, how, when the last voter cast their ballot. Were there lines earlier this morning before those centers opened up? There was a line at Honolulu Hale that looked like it stretched out to the 
to the road. So I've, I've not seen something like that in a while. And then uh, any reports back from the neighbor islands? No. As far as you know, so we, all good? Yes. And for the general election, there's a lot more people utilizing in-person voting than did in the primary. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, general elections usually do have a higher turnout, so more people voting, and the numbers are going to go up disproportionately, right? Well, what was it like primary day? Did you have a number of people that registered on that day? You know, it's very few people who registered at a voter service center who wasn't previously registered at and registered and voted at a voter service center. Off the top of my head, it would it'd be like less than 200 statewide. Really? That low? Yeah, it's a, it's a real small. It was a real small number. Talk about the manpower, the adjustments that you've had to make just with this pandemic and with this uh, mail-in voting. So one of the biggest adjustments we had to make was um, the size of our facilities not just on Oahu at the convention center, but even on the neighbor islands. For example, we had to get a much larger facility uh, in the county of Hawaii for our county center just so we could spread people out with social distancing. Because voting by mail does require more people to process ballots because you have to open them, take out the secrecy sleeve, then take out the ballot from the secrecy sleeve. We needed a larger space with the social distancing still. Previously, when everybody was cramped in that hallway at the state capitol, that wouldn't work with social distancing. So we did have to look for a bigger space. And fortunately, the convention center was available. Now, in the past, if I recall, you know, you've had to hire taxi service, right, to to uh, yes. transport the ballot boxes from the precincts. We had to deliver the ballots in the morning as well as pick them up after the polls closed. So that was our delivery collection team. We no longer have that anymore. The counties do operate a smaller delivery collection team to go pick up from the drop boxes, but nowhere near the over, I believe it was like 75 taxi cabs that we would have to hire on Oahu alone to deliver ballots as well as retrieve them. So that's been cut out of the budget? Yes. And then talk about the situation with the uh, U.S. Postal Service. So we've received that same letter that um, almost every jurisdiction in the nation receives recommending that we inform voters that if they're going to mail their ballot back, uh, they should do it by the 27th or one week out so that it would get to the elections office in time. Uh, Hawaii does have a hard deadline of receipt by 7 p.m., not postmark, like some other jurisdictions may have. So we did change our messages to say that we've also sent out ballots earlier so that voters would have more time to vote and return it sooner and more time for the USPS to deliver it. We've also... So drop boxes um, in the primary in, in some locations opened up five days prior to the election. Most of the drop boxes for the general election opened when ballots is household. The voters had time to actually turn the ballot in, and they had drop boxes that they could drop them off at rather than having to wait till five days prior to the election to do it like they did in the primary. In the past, I know there have been kind of wayward boxes. Is there anything in the process now that would prevent that? What do you mean by wayward boxes? Oh, you know, if like, there was something that maybe didn't get picked up at the postal service? So right now, there is a process in place where uh, election officials will go prior to 7 p.m. to pick up the ballots and not um, after 7 p.m. Uh, we did make arrangements for the United States Postal Service to deliver or make that transfer of custody prior to 7 p.m. So in the past, they would collect them and give it, transfer them to the city. They're, they were received by 7 p.m., but they would give it to the city after. Um, now that's all done prior to 7. Okay. So uh, the, the last pickup, any idea when that will happen? Uh, no, that's something that um, the city usually arranges with the United States Postal Service. They don't have a time on that. And then on the back end, so you hope to get a healthy portion of those ballots uh, out in the first returns. Yes. What about after that and then challenges? So the next report will be issued to 10 o'clock and that that will include the voter service centers uh, statewide and then from there each county when each county is finished they'll will issue a county election night final if you recall Honolulu's election night final I don't know why I call it election night because it did come out the next morning at, at 1130 um, that will come out similar to we're anticipating it coming out similar to it did in the primary because just processing those last ballots, which are the, the ones that are dropped off in the drop boxes on election day. 
can you share with us any discussions you might have had about security and any concerns about violence, you know, after the election? You know, we're not seeing any, um, we don't have any indication of that happening here. We do work with our federal partners, the Hawaii State Future Center, FBI, Homeland Security, and we haven't seen any instances of that um, or any likelihood of that to occur here. Okay, so we're hoping that cooler, cooler heads prevail in the days following this election. If voters want to see if their ballot has been received, they can go to track their ballot. Uh, there's a track your ballot feature on our website, uh, elections.hawaii.gov, where they can just type in their driver's license number, log in, and see if their ballot has been received, accepted, and processed for counting. And that was Chief Elections Officer Scott Nago talking about the election process. And now we're joined by HPR News Director Bill Dorman uh, to talk about the election coverage on public radio. Yeah, hi, Catherine. <laughs> and so it is, yeah, election night, and even though it is stretched out over time, as has been uh, talked about a, a lot on the national level, and as Scott was going through in terms of the 7 o'clock printout, maybe as late as 745, uh, we're going to be starting coverage with special coverage with NPR at 2 o'clock Hawaii time. That's 7 o'clock Eastern time. And we'll be taking that national coverage at least through 9 o'clock local time tonight, depending on what happens. It could go later. It could go much later. Uh, on the local side, Ryan Finnerty and I will be updating the state results starting at, at 7 or a little thereafter. And we'll be doing this as part of the NPR coverage. And, uh, again, depending on when those printouts come out, uh, going through some of that. But that, that first printout should tell us an awful lot uh, because of that, that volume of, of early voting. And then we'll see through the night. Reporters, uh, Ryan's going to be covering the Honolulu mayoral race. Kuvehi Hiraishi is going to be on the Big Island mayoral race. Casey Harlow, Washington City Council races here on Oahu and the prosecutor's contest as well. Also going to try something, uh, Savannah Harriman-Pote, who used to work on this show, uh, going to be checking in on Lanai to see how things are going there in the midst of the, the spike in coronavirus uh, cases as well. So what can you tell us about the NPR coverage? So it's interesting. A couple of things. You're going to have a series of rotating hosts to our listeners. They'll be familiar voices to you, of course. But one of the highlights to me of the NPR coverage is hearing from local reporters around the country because these are people who live there. And in the battleground states, you know, the knock on a lot of network coverage of, of reporting is that, it, you know, you parachute in and you do what you can. You, you learn what you can, but you don't live there. Um, the, the thing about uh, NPR coverage of bringing in local reporters is that, that these are the, the folks who live there day in, day out. They're used to this. They've seen past elections. They know trends. So that, that sense of depth, really, and a little more context uh, is one highlight. One other interesting thing, just in terms of everybody's going to be watching, of course, projections and uh, all of that, uh, AP is going to be sort of the, the coin of the realm for NPR. If uh, Associated Press calls a race in a particular state, that's what will be reflected in the results. If any candidate claims victory before the AP calls a race, NPR is going to do some independent fact-checking on that uh, before before calling a race. So how, would, how do you think this election compares with previous ones? Yeah, it's crazy. You know, the, the uh, journalists, we always want to sort of go back and say, well, this reminds me of, and th really, it's, it's unprecedented on a lot of, lot of levels. But having said that, 2016 was a great surprise to, to many folks as that, that turned out. But you go back also to 2000, that's uh, a bit longer uh, reaching back. But in terms of the, the uncertainty of what they're talking about, the legal challenges, all that, again, we'll know more when we know how close we're looking. Uh, and, and that, in terms of some of early indications, not only when do polls close, but also how do they account for voting in certain states? Um, and, and by that, I mean uh, Florida and North Carolina are a pair of examples that uh, they will have, they've started counting uh, advanced balloting already, so they will know, as opposed to a place like Pennsylvania, where they don't start counting uh, until, until after all the votes are in. Well, I, I recall uh, Florida and the hanging chads, oh, and I think we had to yes. wait a month or something before things got certified. So hopefully uh, we'll know soon. Shorter but, this you know, time, we the, hope. The uncertainty is crazy.
All right. Well, thank you, Bill. You bet. Thanks. And you can follow election coverage online at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about the only woman ever to serve as Honolulu mayor. Born in Bell, California in 1928, she held various government posts before her mayoral bid. Her resume included being the first Hawaii State Director of Budget and Finance during Governor George Ariyoshi's administration. Her election victory over uh, incumbent Mayor Frank Fossey in 1980 was a surprise to many, including Frank Fossey, and she won by a landslide with 70% of the vote. She ran on a theme of fiscal responsibility, and she remained true to her word when she canceled the Honolulu Area Rail Rapid Transit Project, a projected 23-mile heavy rail system that would have linked Pearl City to Hawaii Kai. In doing so, she returned the $5.75 million to the federal government, saying, why spend $5 million on a system that won't be built? She only served one term from 1981 to 1985. And this morning, we're looking for her name. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for HPR comes from Le Jardin Academy, announcing a virtual open house for grades preschool through high school, 9 a.m. this Saturday, offering face-to-face and distance learning options. Registration at lejardinacademy.org. American voters will finally get to choose who they want in the White House. I'm running as a proud Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. Get out and vote. The red wave is coming and an anxious nation awaits the results of critical contests around the country. Join us tonight for special live coverage of Election Night 2020, plus more updates on tomorrow's morning edition from NPR News. Live coverage begins this afternoon at 2 here on HPR One. Young people in Hawaii have used electronic cigarettes at some of the highest rates in the country, but legislative proposals to change that uh, that behavior have failed to gain traction here. It's a story that HPR's Ryan Finnerty has followed and talked about with HPR News Director Bill Dorman. Ryan, you looked at this story going back a number of years. States like California have faced similar challenges with youth vaping, but have taken different approaches. And that includes banning flavored tobacco products, restricting sales in other ways. But in your reporting, you found that hasn't happened here. Yeah, that's right, Bill. I've been covering this issue of vaping and particularly underage vaping for a few years now, and the story has always kind of been similar from year to year. Um, Some lawmakers will propose a law or several laws usually each year trying to restrict restrict vaping devices um, or put a tax on them, which is meant to reduce demand. Um, and usually the goals are make is to make it harder for underage kids to get their hands on these vaping devices or e-cigarettes, um, that umbrella of products, because uh, you are required to be 21 in the state of Hawaii. And that was really the only law that has gained significant traction in the, the past few years was raising the tobacco age from 18 to 21. Um, 
And while all of this was happening, uh, underage vaping in Hawaii, the rates were really continuing to climb. A CDC survey from 2019 found that 50% of Hawaii high schoolers had tried vaping or e-cigarettes, so one in two. And these are pretty addictive products, much like traditional cigarettes, but um, advocates say it's easier to even get more nicotine in the form of uh, vaping than you would in a normal cigarette. And these are a lot easier to hide. Um, and so it's, it's easier for kids to consume this once they get their hands on the actual uh, vaping device and the product. And one of the most controversial aspects of the debate around uh, this uh, this product, as you alluded to, is the industry's use of flavored e-liquid or vape juice. That's the name for the substance that actually gets vaporized in one of these devices. And advocates say that the flavors are targeting children. They have names like banana split, cotton candy, Fruit Loops, and uh, and a lot more. Um, and you can kind of see uh, what they're what they're alleging there. Um, to the point that a, a bipartisan group of lawmakers in Congress, which included Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz, launched an effort last year to ban them. Um, several states, as you mentioned, including California, have uh, have banned flavored vape products. California passed a law just a few months ago. And when that ban was signed into law, uh, we at HPR decided to revisit the issue and see why similar legislation had repeatedly failed in Hawaii. And when you went through that and did the reporting on that, you went through a lot of material. Some of that included the legislative bills themselves, of course, that were put forward on vaping at various times and what happened to them. Um, but there's another track as well, which is the, the political contribution track. What did what you find? Yeah, I looked through five years of, of legislative records, as you mentioned, uh, to just see kind of what had been proposed and discussed and what the results had been. Um, and on that front, I found that more than 80 bills in the last five years, so since the 2015 legislative session, had been proposed to restrict vaping in some way. Uh, it included measures like taxation, because vape products are not currently taxed uh, in the state of Hawaii the way traditional tobacco is. Um, banning internet sales to anyone other than a licensed vendor. You can currently buy them, uh, buy these products online and have them shipped right to your house. Uh, with just sort of a cursory age verification, um, and also uh, a ban on flavors, as we've mentioned. And of those uh, more than 80 bills, only three became law uh, during that period. One, as we've mentioned, raised the tobacco age in Hawaii to 21 from 18, and the other two were pretty narrow. They banned vaping and smoking on the campuses of the University of Hawaii and the State Health Corporation. And what became clear from looking through the legislative record and talking to different people who have been involved in this debate is that there was one committee in particular that had become the graveyard for many vaping bills. And it's the House Finance Committee, which is a very powerful body. It has to approve a substantial percentage of all legislation uh, in the state capitol before it can get a final vote. Basically, anything that has to do with spending of public money or taxation, anything involving money, uh, this committee and its counterpart in the Senate have to approve it. And over the five-year period that I looked at, going back to 2015, 14 anti-vaping bills died in this committee, this, the House Finance Committee, and only six were passed. Um, and, and some of these would have seemed, they seemed pretty uncontroversial to me. There were a couple to uh, that proposed to enact fines uh, or, or steeper fines for retailers caught selling illegally to minors. There were several flavor bans and, and, and multiple restrictions on Internet sales and, and to create parity um, on the taxation. And the, the really uh, noteworthy thing, uh, in addition to the number, was that most of the bills were killed without a vote actually being recorded. Usually you can go on the state capitol's website, look up a bill, see what happened to it, maybe where it was voted down or where there was disagreement and how far it got in the process. Um, with with so many of these bills, I identified 14. Um, they just sort of got to the House Finance Committee and stopped. And it would uh, the record would say that they were deferred or uh, that uh, or it had been referred to the House Finance Committee, and then nothing. No hearing was scheduled, no vote, no record of the vote for most of them. 
Um, and, and that type of action is really at the discretion of the chair of a committee. The committee chairs are the ones who schedule bills for hearings and conduct the votes and, and, uh, and tally everything. And so uh, it became clear that Representative Sylvia Luke, who chairs the House, the House Finance Committee and did for the entire period that I looked at, um, had a big hand in this. She represents the Honolulu neighborhoods of Makiki, Punchbowl, and New Uwanu in the State House. And, um, and she was also identified to me by multiple independent sources as being a major opponent of the of attempts to restrict vaping and restrict underage vaping. Uh, and so then, as you mentioned earlier, I decided to look into her campaign finances um, because politicians in Hawaii are required to disclose uh, how much money they raise in donations and where it comes from. And uh, looking back uh, to 2014, since then, she received about $20,000 in donations either directly from tobacco companies who have a big stake in vaping um, or their local lobbyists here in Hawaii. The two companies uh, of note were Altria, which has a 35% stake in Juul, and uh, Reynolds American, which is uh, one of the largest, a subsidiary of one of the largest tobacco companies in the world and uh, also has a stake in the vaping industry. Both sent Luke money in recent years, uh, and, but there were two local lobbying firms that made up the bulk of the donations, uh, Capital Consultants Hawaii and Sanhai Government Solutions, which are both registered, or their employees and their lawyers are registered as lobbyists for those two tobacco companies, um, contributed a majority of the funds. and. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. You can go look it up. It's all publicly available information. It's not the easiest system in the world to use, but you can go to the Campaign Spending Commission website, the Hawaii Campaign Spending Commission, and you can look up donations uh, by individuals and by lobbyists. There's a separate database for lobbyist registration and spending, and you can see that uh, this was going on the whole time. You can also look up all those bills that I mentioned. Um, Sylvia Luke declined multiple requests for comment, including one that specifically identified her legislative record and her campaign finances as being a, a, a focus of the story. So we don't have her response. But the picture we're left with is of someone who took money from corporate interests and then very effectively intervened on their behalf to prevent uh, this type of regulation from being passed. And as I mentioned, it, you know, it's worth noting that the committee did pass several bills. Uh, ultimately, those did not become law for other reasons. Um, but they did pass one, including uh, last year, that would have banned flavors, but it also increased fines and penalties for underage users, which advocates say is is not an effective way to address this problem. And, uh, and Luke has said publicly that uh, going after users is her preferred way for addressing this issue. Ryan Finity covers politics and government for Hawaii Public Radio. Ryan, thanks for his story. Sure thing, Bill. And thanks Thank for joining you. us to talk about it a little more. You can find Ryan's original story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can search for vaping. Honolulu Civil Beat's reality check today takes a hard look at Hawaii's broken economy. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us this morning. Hi there, Stuart. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Oh, when are we going to fix this thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're hearing about a lot of hurt. Yes, there's a lot of hurt. And uh, fortunately, there are some ideas out there on how to address it. And, you know, as you know, the, the state and local governments have all been trying uh, to come up with comprehensive plans. We really haven't seen anything yet. So we decided to go ahead and talk to some business people and find out if, if there were a comprehensive plan, what would you like to see in it? So that's what led to this story. So talk about the folks that you reached out to. Yeah, so we reached out to business people that have been prominent discussing a lot of these issues in the community. We talked to Peter Ho from Bank of Hawaii, uh, Mark Mugiishi, uh, chairman uh, or CEO of HMSA. Uh, we, we spoke to uh, one person, Ryan Tanaka. He's a 
financial consultant, and he did the um, a study looking at commercial uh, leases and commercial tenants, and and that was really interesting. And it, maybe it's one to start off with. You know, he surveyed uh, 1,500 businesses and found that. You know, about 40% of the businesses weren't caught up with their lease payments as of the third quarter. So, you know, we have rental assistance now for uh, residents, but what about businesses? And this is something we hear a lot about. You know, the rental uh, businesses need help paying rent. So that's one idea he came up with. Uh, apparently, uh, the study indicates that during the third quarter, about $62 million statewide was going unpaid. So that's money that could be uh, given to the businesses, let them renegotiate with landlords, um, try to get a better deal, try to renegotiate something long-term, um, and then move forward in a way that they can survive. And then what about the restaurant businesses out there? How are, how are they doing? Well, yes, um, that's another person we spoke to. We spoke to Jonathan McManus, who's um, owner and operator of Hotel Wailea on on Maui, um, but he's also a partner with Chris Kajioka in Cinea and Miro restaurants here. And McManus's idea is to uh, well, first of all, you've you've seen what's happened just over the weekend. Ed Kenny announced that he was closing town, acclaimed restaurant here. In Kaimaki, um, Alan Wong announced he was closing rest- his restaurant permanently. So this is these are big deals for local chefs, local restaurants. The the issue that McManus says is if this continues like this, the only restaurants we're going to have here are ones that uh, have the deep pockets, basically are owned by hedge funds or equity funds that can wait this out and ride it out. All the independently owned restaurants, or a lot of them, are going to go out of business. Right. So the so chains, Mc- the chains that we see, the what are the Cheesecake Factory, those kinds of things might, you know, hang in there. But the the, the small guys, the local right. guys, are hurting. Right. And again, I spoke to McManus this morning. He pointed out that you know, look, we had Olive Garden opening up. I mean, here's a restaurant opening up here, one of these big chains. Um, opening up during the pandemic while you have Ed Kenny closing. So it's pretty ironic. Anyway, his idea is to provide tax credits. If people invest in restaurants, they provide the liquidity for the restaurants to make it. And then they you know, don't have to pay taxes to the state. So it's a tax expenditure for the state, but it basically is a way of getting money directly to restaurants that need it. That's an idea. Um, does it have legs? I guess we'll see during the session if anybody picks up this idea. But uh, that's the kind of solution that we're you know, hearing about from people. Right. I mean, we've heard lots of talk about we need a plan, you know, how to, uh, to, to, I guess, build a more resilient economy once we get through COVID. Um, but, yeah, like you said, where's the plan? Where's the beef? <laughs> Right. Well, we don't have the we don't have the long term plan. We don't really see anything for that. But, uh, but more important, a lot of what we have seen are uh, responses to things. Um, as you recall, there was a, a program the state announced, working with the cha- uh, Chamber of Commerce, to provide grants for businesses that spend money to pivot um, in ways to respond to COVID, and that's good. But it seems like we need more from what folks are telling us. Right, and they're talking about, you know, we need to do green energy, um, and everybody's waiting to see what happens uh, in Congress if there's going to be additional bailout money, too. So lots of uncertainty. Right, and and that's the thing, and that was one of the first points Peter Ho from Bank of Hawaii said. He, he said, look, we really need, we need a, a, like a CARES Act, too, or the HEROES Act, or something like that. Businesses need liquidity, as he put it, in the uh, meeting a couple of weeks ago, the House COVID Committee meeting that he co-chairs, he said, look, you know, it's like a sinking ship. People are in the water. They might have life vests, but they'll die of exposure if they don't drown. Oh, that's not a good visual. All right. <laughs> not a good way to end the year, but thanks so much, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. More at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, America has long been a dog-loving nation. The pandemic has brought even more dogs into our homes and made us even closer. So how well do you know your dog? What you see in that great furry pile of dogness is about to change. Cognitive scientist and dog devotee Alexandra Horowitz on how well our dogs know us. I do consider them little anthropologists watching our behavior and learning. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about Honolulu's only female mayor, a woman who defeated incumbent Frank Fossey with a 70% landslide victory in 1980. She only served one term during which she counseled the Honolulu Area Rapid Transit Project. It had been in the planning stages for years, a heavy rail system that would have connected Pearl City to Hawaii Kai with 21 stations over 23 miles of track. In canceling the project, she returned, oh, like $5 million, uh, $5 million in federal funding and grants that had been earmarked for the project. Her stated concern was the ongoing burden a rail project would have put on Honolulu taxpayers. Wow. Fossey won the mayor's office uh, back in the 1984 election. Her last entry into politics came when she made an unsuccessful run for the Democratic Party's lieutenant governor nomination in 1986. Her name? was Eileen Anderson. And uh, congratulations to Valerie Lamb of Kailua. You got it right. That's our quiz for today. Do you have one that you'd like to share? Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, this month we will mark Veterans Day. It's Wednesday, next week, Wednesday, November 11th. In advance of that, we thought we would bring you a story about a name you may have been hearing in the news a lot because of the recent COVID-19 cases. Yukio Okutsu was an Army soldier, part of the 100th Battalion in the famed 442nd Regimental Combat Team. His bravery during a battle in Italy was recognized. He single-handedly destroyed three enemy machine gun encampments. The Army veteran was honored with the Medal of Honor, the nation's most prestigious military award for valor, presented to him by President Bill Clinton in a ceremony at the White House. Here's Okutsu's story shared during that ceremony from June 2000, courtesy of the Clinton Presidential Library. The Medal of Honor is awarded to Technical Sergeant Yokiyu Okutsu for extraordinary heroism in action on 7 April 1945 on Mount Belvedere, Italy. While his platoon was halted by crossfire of three machine guns, Technical Sergeant Okutsu boldly crawled to within 30 yards of the nearest enemy emplacement through heavy fire. He destroyed the position with two accurately placed hand grenades, killing three machine gunners. Crawling and dashing from cover to cover, he threw another grenade, silencing a second machine gun, wounding two enemy soldiers, and forcing two others to surrender. Seeing a third machine gun, which obstructed his platoon's advance, he moved forward through heavy small arms fire and was stunned momentarily by rifle fire, which glanced off his helmet. Recovering, he bravely charged several enemy riflemen with his submachine gun, forcing them to withdraw from their positions. Then, rushing the machine gun nest, he captured the weapon and its entire crew of four. By these single-handed actions, he enabled his platoon to resume its assault on a vital objective. The courageous performance of Technical Sergeant Okutsu against formidable odds was an inspiration to all. Technical Sergeant Okutsu's extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit on him, his unit, and the United States Army. And today you'll hear about another side to Yukio Okutsu. Okutsu was born in Koloa, Kauai. He died in Hilo at the age of 81 and is buried at the Hilo Veterans Cemetery. His story is featured in the Hawaii Tribune Herald. Journalist Carlene Chinnan told us she bothered that she was hearing his name on the news because of the deaths at the veterans' home that bears his name. She got to know Okutsu after hearing about the friendship between a band of brothers, 
veterans who could be seen walking the streets of Halo Town, pushing a wheelchair of one of their own. It's a compelling story she thought needed retelling. Chinon retired recently as editor of the Hawaii Herald, but that story she wrote more than three decades ago is one that holds a special place in her heart. She shared the memories of the morning she first met the group of veterans on a gray, wet morning in Hilo Town. Uh, Toshio Nagami, Sadao Nishida, Wataru Kohashi, Robert Honda, and Yukio Okutsu were among them. When I got to Hilo, it was raining, of course. Of and course. they start at 8 a.m. And so I had to catch the 5.55 flight out of Honolulu to Hilo. And I'm not an early riser. So when I got there and it was raining and they told me to meet them at the parking lot at Kaiko'o Mall, I was waiting for them and it was raining. And I thought, oh, my gosh, please don't tell me that they canceled, you know. And I, I got out of bed early and came over here early for nothing. But then... I started driving around the parking lot, and then I saw them. They're trying to maneuver his wheelchair over a curb. So then I parked the car, and I ran over, and I joined them. But, you know, it really was one of the one of my favorite stories, if not my favorite story that I did, because it really taught me a lot firsthand about this bond that grows between veterans in battle, because they were all in the 442nd F Company, Fox Company. And most of the guys were in were from Hilo, but Yukio Okutsu, who everybody called him Yuki, was from Koloa, Kauai. And, but, you know, they ended up in the same company as the 442nd. So they went through training together, and then they went into combat together in the 442nd. And I guess that friendship, that bond was so strong, grew to be so strong. And, you know, they, you know it wasn't that many years that they served together in Europe. But uh, I, I think um, that bond transcends time. You don't need a whole lot of time years to cement uh, a relationship. His kids would refer to, you know, the F Company guys as uncle instead of Mr. So-and-so or whatever. It was always uncle. So what do you remember of that morning as you were walking with them in Hilo, in rainy Hilo? Um, I remember that they were just kind of a, a fun-loving group of guys and that they really cared about this this. Uh, guy. Um, his name was Toshio Nagami, but they had nicknamed him Haksi. And um, and he was kind of a big guy, you know, when you think about it, you know, to get him into the wheelchair and all of that. Um, and then along the way, and it wasn't like, you know, they, it, they weren't conscious that he was in a wheelchair. It was like he could have been walking with them because they would joke with him and so-and-so and this and that and yeah, Haksi. And um, so they never saw it as, hey, we're doing something noble. You know, they just did it. They just did it because they originally thought that it would be good to get him out into the sunshine because his health was, you know, beginning to decline um, because he couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't see anybody. And so they just came up with this great idea to get him into a wheelchair twice a week push him in the wheelchair around Hilo Town, and they would get their exercise at the same time, and they would get their errands done at the same time. So they never thought of it as anything heroic. They're pushing him down the streets in Hilo, and, you know, they pretty much had a, a route. So they would go along Kilauea Avenue towards old downtown in the direction of the, you know, Hamakua Coast. And then they would turn down, I forgot what street it was, and they passed by a bank, and somebody has to pay their mortgage they run off, pay their board mortgage, go to the bank, come back, catch up with the group. And then another one has to go and buy something. He leaves, does this, his business, comes back, joins the group, and they keep walking. And then they, you know, end up back at Kaiko'o Mall. But all the time, you know, they're just laughing and joking with each other and sharing experiences and talking story about Something that happened, and, you know, I remember I shot one photo of them. They were all looking at an ambulance passing by, you know, to see what was going on with this ambulance. So, uh, and I think they really cheered up the shop owners and the shoppers along the route because, you know, they 
people could see that they were doing something good for someone else. And um, whether they were conscious of it or whatever, I don't think they did it because, you know, they wanted people to praise them or to, you know, tell them, hey, good job, you know, thanks for taking care of your friends. They just wanted to do it for Huck. And so it was such a heartwarming story. This was in 1986. Maybe Sadao Nishida, who was the first to retire, started maybe a few years earlier. But this was like 40 years after the war, uh, at least 30 years after, 30, 35 years after the war. And yet, you know, the, this bond was still there. And it meant so much to Hockey because he was just smiling from ear to ear. Um, I think he really, really looked forward to it. That introduction to my story in 1986, it started off with this line, he loves such a rainy old town. You know that song from Robert Beaumont and, and Jerry Santos? Mm-hmm. He loves such a rainy old town. And then at the end of the story, I ended it, say, with the, with the line from another Olomana song. I love you, Hilo. Soon the clouds will disappear and the rainbow will smile on you. Yeah. But, but I, you know, so when I would go back to Hilo, a couple times later, I, I walked with them. And just, you know, just to catch up and talk story with them. And, you know, that's how my friendship with the Okutsus developed. Watching the news night after night, hearing, you know, another another person died at the Yukio Okutsu home. And I wrote the story almost 34 years ago. And these guys, I think there's the only one left is Wataru Kohashi. He's the only one left, I think, of the of four guys who walked with Hoxie. So they can't get out there and say, hey, you know who really Yukio Okutsu was? You know, they're not going to be able to, they're not able to do that. They wouldn't do that. And their families probably would not do that either. But I, you know, what what's my friendship with them for if I don't say anything? Because it, it really bothered me day after day listening to the death toll climb at that facility. And I knew that people were thinking, who is this Yukio Okutsu, you know? And I think if you don't, if I, in the back of my mind, I wondered whether at some point someone might say, you know, we should just change the name of the facility. And I didn't want that to happen. Uh, you know, he was, he was a Medal of Honor uh, recipient, but he didn't boast about it. But, you know, it's something to be proud of. And he was the only one from the Big Island. So... I just kind of felt that, you know, having been their friend for so long, I, I really needed to say something. If people didn't want to pay attention, that's fine. But I needed to say something in order to, you know, feel peace at peace with myself. And it wasn't hard to write because I had all of these great memories of being with them. And I remember, you know, sitting at the kitchen table in the Okutsu home and saying, hey, Yuki, you're going to go, you're going to get that Medal of Honor. And he goes, one of his comments was, and I, just, I was just reminded of it a couple of weeks ago when I talked to his son, his son Randy, and um, Randy said something about, and then he said, used the expression, shucks. Oh, shucks. And it all of a sudden it came back to me. Yuki would always use that, that term, that word, shucks. It's like, oh, yeah. And he would always say, shucks. So hearing it again was just brought back memories. But, but at that time, sitting at the table with Yuki, I said, you're going to go to Washington. You're going to get that Medal of Honor. He goes, and he said, yeah, but, you know, it's, not a, it's, it's really about how the, the citation is, is written up, as, as if good writing will get you a Medal of Honor. And I just didn't believe him. And I, and I think if you read the, the citation, you understand that, that, you know, that's not it. He really was selfless. He really just did what did his job as he thought he had to do. Humble. And I, I don't think you think about it in that moment as a soldier. You just go. It's just probably fueled by adrenaline. Yeah, you just do it. You know, he was just the most low-key guy you could meet. He would be in his hot houses working on, you know, taking care of his anthuriums. And, you know, that's what he loved doing. Uh, did the family say anything? What did they share with you about, you know, hearing his name tied oh, his to COVID? Family, you know, his, his son is very low-key, mm-hmm. so he doesn't he didn't say any, uh, anything. Okay. But he was he was happy that I was writing it. His nieces and grandniece 
were really, really happy because, you know, they have such good memories of, of spending time with their aunt and uncle. But, you know, the amazing thing is that I've gotten emails from and texts from friends. People don't, like I thought, they didn't know who he was. So there's, there was one that got this morning. He said, I'm, I'm glad I don't just associate his name slash facility with COVID anymore. That was Carlene Chin, retired editor of the Hawaii Herald, sharing the Yukio Okutsu story. As she said, she thinks of him whenever she sees anthuriums because that was his beloved hobby. So the next time you come across Obake anthuriums, you can remember the humble, caring man with deep ties to his fellow vets. You can find the Hawaii Herald uh, and that story about Yukio Okutsu on stands in local supermarkets or by subscription. Such a rainy old town I listen to the rain coming down Don't it fall so free Take a walk in the rain And let the rain wash away your pain And start all over with me I reach for the Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, serving the islands for 150 years through job creation and civic support. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii with a commitment to respect Hawaii's communities, people, cultures, and environment. Book clubs with engaging discussions. Trivia nights with lively but friendly competition. Cocktail tutorials taught by Hawaii's leading bartenders. What do all of these have in common? They're examples of events put on by Generation Listen a group of younger listeners who love HPR and connecting with other public radio nerds. These virtual events are free or inexpensive, are always a good time, and you're invited no matter what island you're on. Follow us on social at HPR Gen Listen. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Maui Academy of Performing Arts, live streaming Songs for a New World, a musical exploring life, love, and hope this Friday and Saturday. Tickets at MauiAcademy.org. Well, that wraps it up for today. And you know, on yesterday's show, we talked about the new show at Kumukuhua Theater called Aloha Attire. It debuts on the 5th. Well, the show is free thanks to a donation by Island Insurance Foundation. We misidentified the generous donor at the end of yesterday's segment, and we regret the error. Tomorrow, it's post-election time. We get results and analysis. What are your thoughts? Weigh in. Did your candidate win or lose? You can call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.